0: So tonight I'd like to talk about some of the teachings of the Buddha that we receive as a really amazing gift. One of the things like in the tradition, um, when we think of the Buddha, it's really, as many of you know, a title. And not just the title of somebody who came to understand their mind really well, had deep insight, liberating insight, but also somebody who did that without the support of somebody who kind of laid out a map for them, gave them instruction, right? So, and then there's a third piece to what sort of makes someone a Buddha, worthy of that title, is that they can articulate what happened to them in a way that's useful, like to us 2,600 years later, which is pretty amazing. So the Buddha came to understand, as we've been talking about all week, that this experience that is being known is a unfolding natural process. And so part of the great brilliance of the Buddha is he was able to map out how it seems like there's a suffering human being, how that experience of me suffering, me being really angry, me really wanting something to happen, me really being feeling disconnected, how that can arise as a natural process. And he also mapped out how these experiences we run into when we have some momentum in our practice of that, release in the heart that release of those entanglements the release of the wanting and the not wanting the release of that struggling and then there's that feeling of life feels pretty good you know it's pretty trustworthy a lot of space a lot of lightness maybe a more natural authentic Love, how that is also just a natural arising, right just the natural unfolding of causes and conditions when they're the supporting the appropriately supporting causes and conditions are there, then that experience of freedom, that experience of lightness that experience of release comes to be, and so then the teachings are really different articulations of these maps of suffering, like painting a picture how our subjective experience of being a suffering human being, how that can be painted or described as a natural process and how our experiences of insight, awakening, freedom, ease, unconditional love, The mind free for moments of attachment, clinging. How that's also, you know, he also maps out how that unfolds and what are the causes and conditions for that unfolding toward freedom. And so, one of the interesting, you know, parts of the tradition, legends, Stories or how the Buddha in talks, you know, he'd lay out these maps, he'd describe them using words, concepts, and the maps would be so helpful that people would get it right then and there in the talk, which is, you know, can kind of work both ways, you know, it can trigger our oh, poor me, you know? <laughs> why don't we have a Buddha? something like that. But it it can also um, open our mind to the power of these maps. Because someone has walked this way, practiced this way before us, and had this result. Right? Because natural processes are lawful. So, If we get the chemistry right, if we get the ingredients right and the steps and the appropriate ways to be relating, the appropriate ways to be showing up, appropriate ways to participate in this unfolding natural process with awareness, then the results should be the same, right? What am I missing? Yeah, I mean that but that you know, it's funny, but it's the appropriate question, you know. Well let me listen again to what you know, this lineage of teachers from the Buddha on down, let me listen again to what they're saying. What am I what's the mind not seeing here? What's here but not being recognized? What what if anything is out of balance? So the Buddha, like the statue behind us and the concept we have of the Buddha, it's really meant to be a symbol of these paths of awakening. And in a way, often you and I, we're the symbol of what greed and anger and delusion, you know, when that's operating in the mind, then life looks like it often looks for us. And we learn a lot from... You know, sometimes we think Sangha is any spiritual community, but Sangha is really, in a moment or for a few moments, a human being that's operating without much greed, anger, and delusion. Then, technically, they're Sangha, right? Because they're sort of modeling freedom in the here and now for us. And we we can see that, like they're sort of a living representation of the map. And But also the friends and ourselves, when we're operating with greed, anger, and delusion, being attached, we're also an important map of these are the causes. Somehow, this life and this moment, the way it's relating, the way it is, is an expression of very profound teachings. This is the way to suffering. Right? This is the lawful unavoidable way to suffering the way the mind is participating whether we're observing a friend or we're observing our own psychological patterns playing themselves out conditioned patterns that have been triggered and there's maybe just a thread of awareness not enough mindful mindfulness and wisdom to interrupt the pattern but enough to know oh yeah these are the causes for suffering this is how suffering gets set in motion Oh, it it is a lawful universe. This is what it feels like when we set suffering in motion. I've been appreciating recently um, some wonderful practitioner scholars that have really established themselves in a really wonderful, generous way in our sort of larger Buddhist community, people who have really depth of practice and also are trained as academics, people like Venerable Annalio, this German monk, and uh, Gil Franzdahl, and there are several others that are on the scene writing and sharing. and as you might expect, you know these teachings, this person lived a long time ago and then People have passed these teachings down generation by generation, first orally, then in written form. And uh, like almost anything in human culture, you know, things get institutionalized, they get adapted and adjusted, and forgotten and changed, and all those sorts of things. And we now we see these teachings seem very useful, but we have to have an open mind about what's been added on, what's been slightly tweaked, what's been reorganized over the years. And we do know some things about the human mind because we have one, and how we you know, tend to make things fit the way we expect them to fit. You know, we sort of shape things to make sense with the mind that's already operating. So I really appreciate some of these scholars that are you know, using academic techniques to get more of a sense of the voice of this person who lived 2600 years ago, who had deep insight, having studied his heart and mind, and had this amazing capacity to articulate what had happened in his own practice in a way that still reverberates today. Gil Fronsdal came out with a book recently. If you don't know, he's a wonderful West Coast teacher um, I don't know if he teaches recently, I don't think he's taught at IMS, but uh, he teaches regularly at Spirit Rock and has his own center and retreat center in the South Bay. And uh, his more recent book is The Buddha Before Buddhism. And it's his translation and comments on an, uh, what's considered to be one of the earlier sets of teachings that you can find in the Sutta Nipata, a particular collection of the Buddha's teachings. And it's said to be one of the earlier collections of teachings because some of the other suttas and discourses in the Pali Canon, what sort of considered to be the early teachings of the Buddha, contain references to this set of teachings. The Book of Eights is the English translation for this collection. So there you know, be other suttas with the Buddha and some of the people, of course, at the time of the Buddha, and they're referring back already to this um, B- um, book of eights, which are written in verse. And so I thought tonight it might be useful to just look at some of these so-called early teachings, you know, not to put something above something else, but just to sort of see if they're useful for us and how they align with the way we've been practicing this week, I thought would be really interesting. You know how we've talked all week about how we've been receiving information and how that will, if we really receive the information and think about it, and then it will be really there for us in the process of being aware that information will just show up and better illuminate what's being known moment by moment. Here's what Gill said about this collection. Rather than a transcendent supernatural reality to be attained, the Book of Eights emphasizes a psychological state accessible within the life people live. The text champions a direct and simple approach to attaining peace. The possibility of peace guides the teachings and practices the text advocates rather than a doctrine to be simply believed. These teachings describe means and practices for realizing peace. Clinging is explained as the primary reason a person is not peaceful. The release of clinging is the primary means to peace. Now this already, doesn't it, so practical, really lines up with our ordinary experience. We see that. How many times in the last week have we seen correlated the experience of clinging with suffering, the absence of clinging with the feeling, experience of spaciousness and release. The value of these teachings is not found in philosophy, logic, or external religious authorities, but rather in the results they bring to those who live by them. The goal emphasized in this text is described both by the states of mind attained and by the mental activities that have been pacified or abandoned. The most common descriptions of what is attained are peace, calmness, tranquility, and equanimity. In sharp contrast, clinging, craving, entrenchment, and quarreling are the most frequently mentioned activities that are abandoned. The relationship between these two sets, the states to be attained and what is to be abandoned, is that experience of the, peace, of the peace for oneself. Is that to experience the peace for oneself, one must abandon clinging. And this, you know, in my own heart and intuitively, it just feels so right as I read these early teachings just this very straightforward pragmatic voice and we find this you know in many places in the collection of teachings of the buddha it's not just this one set of teachings because right? this voice you know the whoever however the many many thousands of people who somehow kept these teachings alive kept remembering them writing them down sharing them generation by generation somehow this voice with all that institutionalization and all the you know retranslations and movements from one culture to the next somehow you can still find that very straightforward pragmatic and unflinching voice of the buddha not not deviating from the issue at hand, which is from a subjective point of view, there are human beings, you and me, that experience suffering. And that's the relevant thing. That's what our heart, whether we know that or not, that's actually what we care about. This burdensomeness, this weight, this anxiety here. And what Helps and what doesn't help. What are the causes for the continuation of the suffering, and what are the causes for the putting down, the going beyond the suffering? Not something mystical, not something supernatural, but this. I, you know, I hesitate to call it a psychological issue because, and it's funny, Buddhism. Like, is it a religion? Is it a psychological practice? Fortunately, we don't have to answer that question. But what we can say is, for those of us here in the room, those of us up here on the platform, we, what we can say is, having listened to the teachings, integrated the teachings, practiced the teachings, that the development of the practice seems to address the issues, the questions, the problems the self has. And it sort of eliminates the need for pursuing you know, other answers. It resolves what needs to be resolved, at least in moments which refreshes the confidence, oh yeah, this is what the heart's been looking for. Here's a, a passage from a sutta that's not in this collection, but Gil mentions it as sort of having the same flavor. It's a very well-known passage. Gil translates the title as a One Auspicious Day. Don't chase the past or long for the future. The past is left behind. The future is not yet reached. Having, have insight into whatever phenomena are present right where it is not faltering and not agitated by knowing whatever is present one develops the mind ardently do what should be done today who knows death may come tomorrow there's no bargaining with mortality and his great army whoever dwells thus ardent active day and night is says the peaceful sage, one who has an auspicious day." So I appreciate the introduction to this collection of teachings that Gil Fransdahl wrote, and he sort of synthesizes the main themes that one finds reading these early teachings of the Buddha. One theme that keeps getting repeated over and over again And this just aligns in our experiences, you know, if we want the personal peace that arises through the mind, the heart that is free of clinging, then we practice noticing that fixed views correlate with suffering and the absence of fixed views correlate with the release of that very same suffering or that very same stress. Letting go of fixed views, not holding to views. Now see, this is very much within, I mean, this is something we can hear, we can think a little bit about already as you know, relatively sensitive human beings. We have a lot of lived experience that starts to kind of vibrate when we hear that teaching, that little instruction, clinging to views, having fixed views correlates with suffering not clinging to views is related to the release, because right? we all of a sudden memories come to mind of times when we or a good friend had a really fixed view and we sensed there's suffering going on right now, right here. And there are probably moments we remember of the mind not so encumbered, not so weighed down by fixed ideas, attachment to opinions. Another theme that <coughs> Gail has distilled from this collection. And these are central themes all through the Buddhist teachings. So it's it's not just that these themes are here, it's really that the absence of other themes, that these are the things that get repeated over and over again in this relatively short collection of verses. So the second one is this uh, avoiding of sensual craving, avoiding the craving of sense experience. Now, it's important to understand that there's a difference between preference, which, you know, exists, and the mind being identified with desire and building story, you know, attachment to desire. Because desire just comes with being a human being, being a sensitive being. We know the difference between too hot and too cold and just right, right? But that's that's nothing pathological about being able to discern like what's painful and what's pleasant. The problem is what the mind does with the pleasantness or what the mind does with the unpleasantness or the neutrality. And then the third theme, it's really two themes, it's like in these verses, this collection of teachings, the Buddha talks about he doesn't actually, they don't mention the word Buddha very often in this, I think just one time in the collection. Usually someone with wisdom is referred to as a sage, right? or what is translated as the word sage, sort of a wise person or someone who is peaceful. So one theme that keeps coming up is, what is a sage, someone who's peaceful, and what's the path to becoming a sage? practice being peaceful with conditioned experience, right? It's sort of the ends and the means come into alignment. And see, that's why you've heard, how many times have you heard about relaxing, you know, softening, opening, allowing? Because if we're interested in a path that leads to the heart's release, to the peace, of a heart not tormented by greed, anger, and delusion, then we need the means, the practice, is to practice relating when this is, is being known, this experience is being known, noticing also how the mind is relating, learning how to notice a difference between when the mind is relating in a not so peaceful way, like with greed or with aversion, and when it's relating in a peaceful way. And then if we notice we're relating in a not so peaceful way, we notice that that's being known, and we relate to that greed or that aversion in a peaceful way. Oh yeah, honey, sometimes it's like this, right? Sometimes the mind's greedy like this, and it feels like this. We allow that too because, why do we allow it? Because sometimes it's like that. It's a natural process, and because it's a natural process, there's nobody in control. And sometimes this mind, maybe your mind too, is greedy. And sometimes this mind, you know, is aversive or fearful or anxious or closed down, shut off, distracted, right? Sometimes it's like that. And you see how wisdom and compassion really come together in these moments. Like, compassion is just. That understanding that it's okay to include this. I can include this. Sometimes it's like this. So that's the third theme. You know, how, how to understand, you could say, the aspiration, like what the goal of practice to become a sage, to become a peaceful human being, and what the training is to become that peaceful human being. That's the third theme that gets covered. And I'll share a little bit. Um, from the discourses from both this collection and a few other places and a few other teachers, just around these three themes. This last theme I'm going to say, um, what a sage knows and sees, right? Because it both describes sort of what a sage, how the Buddha sees or describes a sage, and what that sage is seeing, how they see things. So we have letting go of fixed views and understanding, what craving is really getting what craving is not skillful and that leads to the abandoning of craving or finding ways to abandon craving and understanding what a sage is what someone who has developed the practice is they're peaceful and what did they do to get there they practice being peaceful with conditioned experience what comes and goes so let's take a look at the first one: letting go of fixed views. You know, even just hearing this, it's you know, I'm sure you you notice, I, as I did. We immediately can want to judge ourselves, like we bring to mind all those views that we do cling to, all those opinions that we're pretty sure about. So just be on the lookout for how we can use these teachings to reinforce fixed views. I mean, it's the most paradoxical, ironic thing, but we do it all the time. We hear teachings on compassion, and then we hate ourselves. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but we hate ourselves for not being as compassionate as we think we should be. right? Or we hear a teaching like now on fixed views being not so helpful, and we turn that into a fixed view. Right, And, you know, the interesting thing that really helps um, us catch this is we start looking for other people's fixed views. (laughs) This is endemic in Buddhist circles. I've seen this in myself, you know. I mean, we, we sort of get, it's sort of in the job description, you know, to sort of skillfully reflect back fixed views, you know, when we're meeting with students or whatever. But it's, it's just interesting how this gets a little stinky. <laughs> well, where, where we have a fixed view, unseen of course, and almost that's the real definition, like any fundamentalist view. The very definition is you don't realize it's a fundamentalist view, right? I often, I don't think I've mentioned on this retreat, but materialism is a little bit like that often here for those of us in the West. We have sort of a materialist view, for example, that the mind arises out of the biology of the brain, for example, and consciousness. And we have a fixed view. I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm just saying I don't know whether that's true, right? That, I don't want to be fixed with that, but I'm pretty certain that's true, that I don't know. And, but if I'm not careful, you know, I notice a lot, you know, this is where I notice other people <laughs> having a very fixed view. You know, that consciousness, where else would it come from? Well, I don't know, but just because we don't know does it mean it comes out of the brain. What we know is we don't know everything about the mind. Anybody in the room know everything about the mind? <laughs> or where consciousness comes from? And is it material or is it something else or some combination or not anything at all? And you know, in the academic world, there's sort of, it's just the whole culture is to debate views. And it doesn't mean we don't have opinions. It just means we're training the mind not to cling because we care. And we've noticed when there's clinging, there's suffering. And not only that, we set emotion suffering for others, including ourselves, when we cling. So it's not that other people like it's a harmless crime to cling to views, right? And we see this, you know, all we have to do is step back a little bit and see how much suffering there is around the clinging to views. I think all three of us were at this retreat a few years ago when Sadhu Tejaniya was at uh, Spirit Rock. I don't know if you were in the room at the time, Carol, and I'm not sure Alexis, if you were there for that retreat, were you there? But uh, Saida asked the group of teachers, is, "Are the Buddhist teachings pessimistic or optimistic?" Right? And it was interesting because I, like I think other people in the room, you know, didn't want to have to take a stand. I mean, we knew it was sort of a setup. <laughs> but he was persistent, you know he was like looking at people and. Sort of expecting them to say, okay, so if you don't think, what is it then? But no one, you know, so some people, brave people, said, you know, pessimistic, optimistic. Most people did their best to keep their mouths shut. (laughs) And after sort of the tension in the room got to a certain point, then Sayada said, you know, it's neither optimistic or pessimistic. It's realistic. Now we could get fixed to that too, you know, and want to debate those who say it's optimistic or pessimistic, or the appropriate response is to be cynical or fatalistic, or the appropriate response is to be um, you know, hopeful or idealistic. So I think by realistic, what Sida was pointing to is just to notice that something is being known, to undertake this pragmatic, straightforward training to really take that as a refuge, not some belief about the nature of existence. And this is, again, what I meant when I I really trust the teachings of the Buddha because these early teachings really emphasize a path, a way of being, a way of practicing, a way of living, and that the results are what help clarify the path. And there's an ongoing development of independence, self-reliance, the more we practice. I bet it's true for many of you in the room already that when you hear teachings, there's this very natural thing of you hear it, you comprehend it, and the truth of it resonates on some level. And to the degree it doesn't resonate, it goes on some shelf somewhere in the heart, in the mind, because it might be useful later, might resonate later. But if it does resonate, especially in a strong way, then we keep it alive. We try to remember it. We might need to relanguage it so that the words sort of fit how our mind talks to itself. We use a mental image. Maybe you're more imagist. Uh, you like pictures or poetic images more than sort of uh, analytical phrase about the nature of the mind or the conditional nature of how things unfold, what's skillful, what's unskillful. Gill says that the text, this collection, teaches that to find peace, a follower should shake off every view without embracing or rejecting anything. This includes views about views. And there's a well-known story in our western tradition that I think both Jack Hornfield and Ajahn Sumedho tell about a Buddhist nun that a western nun that Ajahn Chah had ordained this is a long time ago maybe even in the 70s or somewhere back then and uh, this person had been a nun for a while and was quite well respected in Thailand she lived and uh The story that I remember hearing was from a talk Ajahn Sumedho gave where he wanted to bring a Western nun who hadn't been to Thailand before, who he had ordained in England, and bring her to Thailand to spend some time and really looking forward to introducing this newer nun to this more senior nun who had this wonderful reputation. And he finds out that she has... Disrobed and gone back to the states, but not only that. Being back in the states, um, has gotten involved in Christian, some Christian church, uh, evangelical. Returns to Thailand as a missionary, and is converting and and some of the people that had been her students before when she was a Buddhist nun. And. Uh, uh, both the way Jack Cornfield tells the story and Ajahn Sumedho you know, people, both the Thai people, Ajahn Sumedho, like, how could this be? And Ajahn Chah would respond, well, maybe she's right. <laughs> Just to blow their minds, right? Like, shining that or showing that mirror, like, do you see what's going on here? Fixed view, attachment to view right and we have this is also can be endemic in buddhist circles in the wider buddhist scenes between different lineages theravada or early buddhism or insight meditation you know this lineage or tibetan buddhism zen buddhism and then within even within schools or lineages or you no know, i i do natural awareness you know like all of us you know <laughs> I don't concentrate my mind, I I do a wisdom practice, or whatever, you know, I do jhana practice, I'm into the brahma Viharas, or many things come and go, even with our own. You know, another really wonderful thing about how the Buddha actually taught was just a collection of skillful means. And like it or not, we have to be responsible for figuring out how to use the skillful means, when to use the skillful means, with what attitude to use the skillful means, and when to put them down, when it's not the right tool and not the right medicine for the way the mind is, right? This is often what we find in practice is that we keep using a tool, not because it's the right tool, but because it's the tool we know, right? It's like, but it's not the right tool. But I know this tool, <laughs> you know. I've mastered this tool. Yeah, but it's, it's not helping. It's not the right thing to do. There's so many different teachings that sort of remind us about not fixed views. Some of you know a non-Buddhist wonderful teacher, Krishnamurti, um, an Indian man who taught in the West, had a book, Freedom from the Known. And another really well-known book that has influenced many of us was a really one of the first Buddhist books I've read, really affected my life, made me move to San Francisco with Suzuki Roshi's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And he writes in that book, with the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few and then something that comes out of the Zen tradition, this phrase I love, and you've, I'm sure many of you have heard, is the don't know mind. Right? And this is really true in our practice. We don't know need to know in terms of having a viable story that's telling us whether we're a good retreatant or a bad retreatant, whether we're close to something or far away to something. We don't really need to know any of that. We just need to know what is arising in the space of awareness. What is arising Now, What can be known? What's the mind knowing? What can the mind know? What's the attitude of the mind that's knowing? Can this be okay? In other words, can the heart, body, mind allow or relax? Here are some passages from the verses that really refer to this not clinging to views. They are not enemies of any doctrine, right? So the Buddha here is talking about a sage. Sages are not enemies of any doctrine, people who are well-practiced, right? So we don't have to be done. We can just, even on our way, we can practice not being an enemy of any doctrine, seen, heard, or thought out. Not making up theories, not closed down, not desirous, they are sages, wise who have laid down their burden. There's a famous uh, passage from um, a sutta d- discourse in the Middle Length Collection, where the Buddha says, in referring to fixed positions, fixed views, that there are thicket. This is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. It is accompanied by suffering and does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, to calm, direct knowledge, full awakening. Again, from the collection, the Book of Eights. Sages are not, oh, I read that one, one who is attached gets into disputes over doctrines. But how and with what would one dispute someone unattached? We've had this experience, haven't we, at times? Maybe not initially, but eventually, you know, in some conversation, realizing, I don't need to get entrenched here. And we just let go of our attachment. And it can be very frustrating for others who have not let go of their attachments. Or we're the person who hasn't let go of our attachment that somebody we're having a conversation with isn't fixed anywhere. But we really want to do battle. I know this well because this happens all the time between me and my partner. (laughs) You can probably guess what side of that equation I'm on, you know, where... And, you know, maybe this has something to do with, you know, the conditioning as a male or the amount of testosterone, relative amount of testosterone, right? That just sort of comes with the territory of maleness, maybe. But in any case, it aligns with suffering, right? Looking for somebody who has a different view. Isn't that interesting? And I remember when I was younger, it's like, I didn't really care what view I had. I just wanted to debate. And it was uh, it was when I really started to see it, I started to shut up. And these kind of, you know, like in college, uh, that it was more about the argument and winning than about sort of trying to understand things better. I just, I really saw how these conversations and like, you know, these sort of late-night conversations that young adults have about the meaning of life or what's important or who we're going to be or politics or philosophy or music or, you know, those sorts of things. And, and it's just like how nice it is. And then I, I, I didn't become enlightened at that point. Then I started <laughs> to point out other people being fixed to views. Right, so I, I just found a different way to be obnoxious. <laughs> Slowly, that's getting teased out, I think. <laughs> you can ask my friends. So again, this I didn't finish this one passage: "One who is attached gets into disputes over doctrines, but how and with what would one dispute someone unattached by not embracing or rejecting anything? A person has shaken off every view right here. And Gill's comments with some of these passages, he says, or he writes, rather than teaching a doctrine that can be debated, the Buddha here teaches the importance of not clinging to concepts. In other words, he is not interested in doctrines as much as how people relate to them. Freedom isn't found through doctrines. Though it does require not clinging to them, now you might wonder well, how do we use the teachings because teachings you know I'm talking I'm using words and concepts and and they're you know we've all found them to be very valuable, but the clinging to them wasn't what made them valuable. What makes them valuable is there we are humming along with our practice, oh, this is being known, this is being known, this is being known, and there's something about the continuity of awareness and the mind comprehending the conditional, lawful unfolding of phenomena being known that just naturally draws in conceptual understanding that can help, like that that understanding comes in and it affects, it changes how the mind, the attitude of the mind, the way the mind is seeing, connecting, knowing, the experience. But we don't need to cling to the idea. So like the idea that everything is a natural process unfolding. We don't need to see that as an absolute truth or that even things that seem like an absolute truth like that things are impermanent. It doesn't make the concept more useful to cling to the idea that everything is impermanent. makes that concept useful is that when the mind is aware that that concept has its effect on the knowing, right? illuminates the knowing, that's what we want it to do. It's just we want it to be part of the mix. As opposed to the idea, this is boring and I don't care. That idea, that concept being part of the mix, doesn't help the development of insight, the mind seeing things as they are. But the idea, the concept, everything's impermanent. Is this changing or permanent? So you could put it in the form of a question or it can be a statement, everything's impermanent. But it it makes the mind interested. You know, it helps the mind notice change, notice the ephemeral nature that Experiences arise, persist momentarily, and then cease. It just brings it into view. So there's there's a real place for words, concepts, ideas. The problem is the clinging. The other theme that I mentioned that is really strong in these teachings and really all the way through the Pali Canon, canon, this larger collection of the teachings uh, from the the historic Buddha, presumably, or rifts off of those teachings, is this uh, teaching on sensuality and craving, how the heart, how the mind relates to sense experience with, or without craving. And I made the distinction earlier that craving isn't the same as noticing that something's pleasant or that something's unpleasant. Craving is when there's desire and there's also attachment, identification with the desire. So we've personalized desire. So desire is sort of what a sensitive being has when it's sensitive. It feels the attraction, the pleasantness or the unpleasantness, it knows, it recognizes, it has preferences. All this is just built into being a sensitive being. But when that sensitive being has a habit of constructing the sense of a somebody who needs this, wants this, will be happy if they get this, or somebody who's will be unhappy if they get this, and then the story, right? creates the tug, we call that tug grasping, thirsting, clinging. And then that tug then generally often leads to action, where we actually take a hold of it, right? So there's the craving into the grasping, I meant I meant craving, not clinging, when I was mentioning it before. So we have craving, that's the tug, oh, I really want that. And then there's the grasping where there's some action to get it. And that makes an impression in the mind, in the heart. We become, the mind going forward becomes different having had the desire, identified with the desire, so there's craving, there's that tug, and then acted on the tug by grasping it. And then that creates that process of sense contact, liking, noticing the pleasantness, the tug, the grasping. We become the person who will be happy if I get the thing I like and unhappy if I don't get it. We sort of, in a sense, we say we take in birth as the one who will be disappointed if I don't get it, will be more momentarily gratified if I do get it. And so the Buddha is just giving us this pointing out instruction. Hey, folks, I noticed something. It was really impactful in terms of the deepening of understanding. You might want to use it, this pointing out instruction. Get really interested in sense experience and the craving that arises around sense experience. And do this correlation, craving, suffering no craving, no suffering, attachment, suffering, it hurts. No attachment, that hurts gone, no hurt. And it seems way too easy, you know, with our, all the different ways we experience pain. It just seems too easy, like, so when I'm really hurting, emotionally hurting, physically hurting, Existentially hurting. And all I have to do is drop attachment. But we need a lot of humility about that experience of the heart free from attachment. It's in a sense, we know the abandoning of attachment when the weight lifts. Realizing momentarily the heart or the mind without attachment the heart and mind without, in that moment, problems. Doesn't mean that reality has somehow disappeared, but the mind isn't in a contentious relationship with what's coming and going. It's in a peaceful relationship, even if there are painful sensations coming and going or beautiful sensations, painful emotions, beautiful emotions, but the mind isn't in a contentious relationship And it's just interesting, you know, because it's another one of those places where we can misread or misunderstand the Buddhist teachings and we can somehow think that the Buddha is saying that sensuality is bad or sense existence is bad and be so much better if I just weren't here. You know, this is called nihilism, you know, thinking that, God, if if I just wasn't a sensitive human being, then I'd be happy. But that's often, I mean that's sort of that we feel that sometimes at, on retreat where I just want to go to sleep. Right? It's a little bit of the, this craving for non-existence. The Buddha names this as just one kind of craving. There's craving to become somebody, there's craving to get something, and there's craving to be done with it. Just to be done with it. And sometimes we do that by vegging out in front of a TV, and sometimes we do that by going to sleep, and Sometimes we use drugs and alcohol to check out. There's any number of ways. So we just don't have to feel. Don't have to be real. But we learn, right, if we're honest, if we pay just enough attention, we'll realize, well, that's not the way. It's very seductive because in the same way we get a little bit of delight when we get the thing we want, there's a little bit of relief when we go to sleep, when we're being entertained, absorbed into some decent movie or something like that. You know, we get a little break from just feeling what we feel as a human being, seeing what we see, being aware that this is being known. But you always have to go back. This is a interesting story. This is in the early 90s when I first um, was with my wife my partner and uh, we moved from New York City to Minneapolis in 91 and I had been living in a sort of spiritual place and so now we were living in a spiritual community but now we were living kind of a normal lay life and we can go to movies and so we go to movies and I noticed it took a while but she b- she bared with it but I noticed that coming out of movies I was always grumpy and irritable And I had enough wherewithal to catch it some of the time. And probably she pointed it out, and then I got it some (laughs) of the time. And then over, I mean, it took a while. It was, you know, we didn't see that many movies, so I didn't have that many opportunities. But I, I finally, after a year or so, I finally correlated the irritation and the grumpiness was I was happily absorbed in whatever the movie. And, you know, a lot of the movies we watch or really, like, it's not pleasant stuff, but it's not my unpleasant stuff. (laughs) And then I'd come back, and I'd have my ordinary mundane existence and practice and being real with this heart, this mind, this body, things coming and going, the confusion, the ambiguity that just is endemic in human existence when we're honest. And I missed seeing that there was this attachment right this identification with not liking it the one who doesn't like it and looking for somebody to blame right blame the movie blame the partner blame the car blame the traffic blame the weather you know blame the body for having indigestion or whatever you know just but find some way some because you know it's really difficult having anger without having an object to be angry at. But intelligent people know how to find <laughs> things to blame, right? Things to be angry at. And so it's really interesting around the, the dynamic of sense experience and what a setup it is for us. So let me close by just reading this discourse. It's interesting. It's Kama Sutta A lot of you know the Kama Sutra, which is a famous text in India, not in the Buddhist tradition, in the yogic tradition, about how to maximize sense pleasure. I don't know if it predates the Buddhist talk or the Sutta discourse on desire. That's what Kama means. But his is not about maximizing sense pleasure, right? just the opposite. And you'll see that in a lot of the Buddhist teachings were a counterweight to the understandings that were prevalent at the time. And he'd often play off of the words that they used, like a lot of the Brahmins were fire worshipers. So what's the word that the Buddha used to describe the release of the heart? Nibbana, a fire going out. But the fire was something to be worshiped in some of the the sort of Brahmin circles at the time. So it's just interesting, this sort of dynamic. Hopefully, I, I, I believe the Buddha didn't get attached to his views, right? But he was willing to be skillful in putting his teachings out to sort of, so people wouldn't be confused or misunderstand them. So here's this discourse on desire from the Book of Eights. When desire for sensual pleasure is fulfilled, one will surely be delighted. The mortals attain obtained what the mortal wanted. Right? So the Buddha's not denying gratification. But if this pleasure fades away, the person with this desire, who gives birth to this desire, is pained as if pierced by an arrow. Carol talked about that simile the Buddha used, the second arrow. Sidestepping sensual desire as one would the head of a snake with one's foot, is the mindful one who, while in this world, steps beyond craving. Right? In this world of sense experience, so not like hiding from the world of sense experience, Is one steps beyond craving. Through greed for fields, goods, gold, cows, and horses, servants, partners, relatives, and lots of sensual pleasures, One's weakness overpowers. Crushed by many troubles, suffering pours in as water into a leaky, leaking boat. A person ever mindful, therefore, turns away from central desires. Abandoning them, one will cross the flood like bailing a boat to reach the far shore. So I'll just mention again you know, as we hear these teachings, they're not here to be a cause for judging ourselves or judging the world of sensuality. We're supposed to relax. As sen- sensitive beings, we're invited to relax, to feel what we feel. The only thing we're abandoning, we're not abandoning sensuality exactly, We're abandoning the wrong ideas of sensuality, the constructions of the thinking mind about sense experience. That's what's not useful. When you step outside and it's a beautiful day, the instruction is to notice, to be sensitive to the beauty, to the joy, to the pleasant breezes. And if tomorrow it's colder and wet, then the instruction is to open and to notice and to notice the heart's response, if there is one, to let it in. So it's not about anti-life, anti-sense experience. It's really about noticing how wrong ideas, dependencies come in, and they always correlate with suffering. And when we're intimate and aware and know it's like this now, we know how to be with the joys and sorrows. We know how to be free. So let's just take a few moments, let go of the words. listening so we have about 25 minutes or so for walking thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate